0: grab your Bible or click, and and truthfully, I want you to do that, whether you have an analog Bible with pages or or whether you have uh, a digital Bible, but turn and click to two places. I'm going to challenge you today. I'm going to challenge you. Turn to two places in Scripture, John chapter 3 and Numbers chapter 21. John chapter 3 and Numbers chapter 21. And I will be honest to say that this was not the um, Easter message that I had prepared. In fact, we had an incredibly different plan for Easter before COVID, as probably a lot of churches did. We had, we had rented a high school auditorium and um, and had just everything was different. But as we have entered into this season, even unwillingly, I really feel like God is speaking more than ever before. And um, probably the message I have today in my typical fashion is not a normal Easter message, but it is an application of resurrection. And so I want to look at John chapter 3 and Numbers chapter 21 and just really try to do my best to share with you what I have felt God's speaking to my heart the last few weeks and the last few days in particular as we were preparing For our time today on Easter Sunday. So, John chapter 3. So, this is Jesus' interaction with a man called Nicodemus. Uh, Nicodemus was a member of the Sanhedrin. So, the Sanhedrin, uh, the Jews were under Roman government, um, but in order to legislate Jewish law and customs and other Orthodox Jewish beliefs, Right, their laws. Uh, The Sanhedrin then were were the ruling legal legal religious authorities, if you will. These are the people who crucified Jesus, by the way. Uh, The Sanhedrin were made up of 70. uh, It was actually 69 rabbis, and then they considered Moses to be the 70th member. Um, And they were made up of Sadducees and Pharisees. Um, And so Nicodemus is one of them. And he is actually a secret disciple of Jesus because obviously it would not be popular as a member of the Sanhedrin to follow Jesus. And so in John chapter 3, he actually comes to Jesus at night because he believes in him. And uh, interesting sidebar, history would tell us that Nicodemus ended up losing his, all of his wealth. He was wealthy. He ended up losing all of his wealth most people believe because he followed Jesus, and some theologians would say that when Jesus encounters the rich young ruler, it is in fact Nicodemus, and he actually goes and gives his wealth away to follow Jesus. So interesting, if you're ever in Bible trivia, there you go. You're welcome. And so, um, so John chapter three is their, their interaction, their exchange between Jesus and, and Nicodemus and in John chapter 3, Nicodemus is basically coming to Jesus and say, "Look, no one can do what you do unless they come from God." So, I believe you came from God. And and then and then Jesus starts this whole conversation unless a man be born again. And then Nicodemus is like, "How can a man enter into his mother's womb?" And then Jesus is like, "That's not what I'm talking. That's no, we're not going there. That's." Mm-mm. And and so they have this conversation, and I want to read John 3 verse 14 through 16, John 16 is the famous scripture for God so loved the world. This comes out of this exchange between Jesus and Nicodemus. Uh, but I want you to get the context and then we're going to jump to number 21. John three fourteen it says, Jesus says to Nicodemus, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the son of man must be lifted up that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. Incredible, incredible passage. Now, in that In that exchange, Jesus references something that happened in the book of Numbers. That's why we turn to Numbers 21. He said, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. And so if you'll turn to Numbers chapter 21, we have a scene that looks like something from um, Indiana Jones, right? Uh, Where where these snakes are going to come out of everywhere. And and we're going to, so it's, you know, and it's also, they're really close to the plains of Moab. So whether it's Indiana Jones or snakes on a plain, Either way, either way. All right. So there's your there's your cultural reference to tie in. But um, Numbers 21. Now, the book of Numbers begins with a census. Let me give you what's going on in Numbers 21. The book of Numbers begins with a census. That's why it's called the book of Numbers, right? And the book of Numbers kind of begins as Israel has come out of Egypt and across the Red Sea, and they've stopped at Mount Sinai, and they're out Mount Sinai for 40 days, and then Numbers begins as they're exiting Mount Sinai. So then from Mount Sinai, they they head towards the wilderness of Paran. That's about halfway uh, to the promised land. Obviously, there's all the complaining. At, at one point, Miriam, that's Moses' sister, and Aaron, Miriam's, and they both um, and Aaron, they both complain. And then God has to like strike them with leprosy and Moses has to like pray that they're healed. I mean, this is really what actually happens. And, and then they arrive at Kadesh Barnea and, and this is like the border of the promised land. And this is where they send the 12 spies and two of them, right, um, come back. Um, and, you know, Hobbes and Shaw come back and they're like, <laughs> it's really Joshua and Caleb. But anyways, they come back and they're like, we can do this. God has given us the land, but the 10 other spies come back and say, "Nope, there's giants in the land. Obviously, God didn't know what he was talking about, or he wouldn't have sent us into a, a, a land and called it our promise with giants and enemies and all those things. And so they, there's mutiny on the black pearl, and they're all trying to, to go back. Um, you can tell I've been vegging out on a lot of movies lately. And so, um, But there's mutiny, and they decide they're going to go back to Egypt, and they're going to appoint new leaders, and then God gets really upset, and Moses intercedes. All right, and so then the 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 whole generation has to die out in the wilderness. Some believe at Kadesh Barnea they just kind of camped there because there's millions of people. Some believe they wandered around, and so for thirty more years they're wandering around. Now we have a new generation. They kind of have the same problems, though, still complaining, etc. And uh, then one thing that happens is God gives them water from a rock, but Moses strikes the rock instead of speaking to the rock. So now Moses suffers the same fate as that first generation. He's not going to go into the promised land. Um, And all of that gets us back to Numbers 21, where they are making a turn for their final trek, if you will, back to the promised land. This time they're going to go in, right, in the Battle of Jericho and all that. And so Numbers 21, snakes on the plain, Indiana Jones. Here we go. Verse four, this kind of self-contained blip in their history. It says they traveled from Mount Or along the route to the Red Sea to go around Edom. So they've kind of reversed course. They have to go around Edom because the Edomites would not let them pass. But the people grew impatient on the way and they spoke against God and against Moses. Now time out because I know none of you and, and not even me, none of us have ever grown impatient with the Lord. Never. So just pat yourself on the back because you are most holy, okay? Because this never happened. But it happened to them. They grew impatient with the Lord. And what happens when when we grow impatient with the Lord? Our mouth opens. Oh, this is good. This is going to help you. Because we get impatient with the Lord and our mouth opens. and, And what our mouth then says actually works against us and God's plan. So they grew impatient with the Lord and they spoke against God and against Moses And said, Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? Because obviously that was God's plan. And you see this sarcasm? Like, they're probably, it's like having teenagers. But um, there is no bread, there is no water, and we detest this miserable food. They're talking about manna, which was kind of a version of Krispy Kreme. It kind of was like this flaky bread that was kind of sweet like honey. It's basically, they got tired. I guess if you ate Krispy Kreme every day, you get tired of it. But, but all of a sudden, they don't like Krispy Kreme anymore. That's how bad it's gotten. And then the Lord sent venomous snakes. The Lord sent venomous snakes among them, and they bit the people, and many Israelites died. And the people came to Moses and said, we sin when we spoke against the Lord and against you. They can be taught, right? They can be taught. Um, we sin when we spoke against the Lord and against you. And so they, they said, pray to the Lord that he would take the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. The Lord said to Moses, make a snake and put it on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it on a pole, then when anyone was bitten by the snake and looked at the bronze snake, they lived. They lived. Uh, I, I called this message, what I felt was the word from the Holy Spirit in my heart that I needed to share. And that was this, fix your gaze. Fix your gaze. So can I pray for us? Father, thank you so much for your son, Jesus. Thank you for his death and burial and resurrection that all, all three parts of that are incredibly significant for us. God, that, that we can die to sin, that our old life can be buried. God, that something new, a new creation can be resurrected. Thank you. And God, now as we turn our attention to your words, speak clearly and let your words penetrate deeply so that we would be transformed totally in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. I think there's been one singular idea that I've had over the last three to four weeks as we've watched the pandemic and what has happened. I think there's been one thing resonating, if you will, in my spirit um, for our church and for our nation, for our world. And it has to do with our focus. And, and I said this previously in, in a message. But I said it was interesting to me that in, in, one, in one fell swoop, if you will, all of a sudden, a lot of the things that we look to were removed. All of our idols, if you will, were removed. Their sports idols, entertainment idols, and money, all those things that typically we look to or trust in seem to be brought down. And the good that has come out of the bad is that our attention and our focus, the world has kind of stopped. We've stopped. We're sheltering in place and our attention has been refocused on God. that's kind of what I want to talk about in, in this message. And I just want to give some application and, and I want for us to not think of this as just an Easter message, but rather as an instruction. Not a warning, because I'm not like an end-of-the-world prophet, but as instruction, as wisdom for the days ahead. So write this down, three things. Watching at home doesn't matter. Write these down. It's going to help you. But the first thing is this, that I see from this text is, what you look to, you go after. What you look to... You go after all throughout the Bible, the eyes, when it talks about eyes, they all um, it has other meanings that go on to talk about the eye of the Lord. That's talking about where he is focused. But in the Old Testament, in, in particular, one of the one of the applications that you can take when it talks about the eyes, what it seems to be talking to a lot of times is direction, which really kind of makes sense, because we would all agree that you tend to go where your eyes look. We used to sing a song in children's church. Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. Why? Because typically we are ensnared by our stare. And the reason that God talks about the eyes in the Old Testament, one of the primary things that we see, especially in the book of Deuteronomy, which is preparation just a few days before they go into the promised land, God talks to them and He said, he's saying, don't look at their idols. Tear down the idols that are in the land or you'll go after other gods. And that's a phrase you see several times in the book of Deuteronomy, you see it in Jeremiah, you see it in Isaiah. Go after other gods. Why will they go after other gods? Because you are captured by what captivates you. You are captured by what? captivates you. So God is saying, tear down the idols lest you get captivated, therefore captured by something that has no power to save you. This is his warning. And this is why he is emphatic about it in the Old Testament. First Corinthians chapter three, Paul says, he says this, Beholding the glory of God in a mirror, we are changed into that same image from glory to glory as by the Spirit of the Lord. Here's what he's saying we will become like what we behold, we will be ensnared by our stare we will be captured by what captivates us. And if you think about all the verses in the Bible, and I'll, I'll give you some here in a moment, but you think about all the verses in the Bible that talk about looking to God, seeking God, look first, looking unto Jesus, right? All of these, what? God is trying to maintain a focus for our own benefit, for our own protection, for his plan, for his glory, and for the promises and goodness that he wants to bring in and through our lives. And it comes through our focus, it comes through our gaze. And here he's trying to fix their gaze because the Bible says they spoke against God, but why did they speak against God? They spoke against God because they had started looking in the wrong direction. Because what did they say? They spoke against God and they said, why did you bring us out of Egypt? Now, how did they get to the comparison between where they were and where they had been in captivity if not their focus had turned from looking toward the promised land to looking back to where they had come from? And so, oh, mm, now this is from the Holy Spirit. Transition times are always the most critical for this. Because it is in transition that I'm not certain where I'm going to end up, but I am sure of where I came from. And if we're not careful, we will like the comfort of knowing with certainty what we had over the discomfort of hoping and believing and having faith for what we've been promised. And they are in a time of transition. And in that transition, something catches their eye because I'm not sure how to focus focus this way, they were able to be tempted with what they were familiar with that way. And look at how crafty the enemy is because only the enemy could make bondage look more desirable than promise. And that's exactly what he does. He plays on on the uncertainty of where they're headed and convinces them That the bondage they had been in was more comfortable, was safer than the promise they were called to. If you think about it, if you're thinking about this, you can think about Egypt represents the world. And the promised land represents God's kingdom and, and what he has called us to. And how many people do we know that started a race towards the promised land, but in transition and when things were difficult, when they grew impatient? One version says when they were discouraged. And in those times of impatience, those times of discouragement, those times of transition, the enemy will convince us that bondage is safer than promise. And that's what happens. But how did it happen? They turned their head. They had been focused on promise. But they turned their head. The problem is when they turned their head away, when they looked back, I'm sitting here thinking about this. I'm thinking about um, Lot's wife. Is this not what happened with her? Here is the angel and her deliverance. One solitary instruction. Have you ever looked at like looked at your two-year-old, your three-year-old? We got one rule. You know, one rule. Don't mess with your older brother or don't mess with your little just one rule, you know. Don't lie to your mother. Just one rule. Hey, you got one rule, Lot's wife. Don't look back. What is it about the bondage that has ensnared us that so much gets a grip on who we are on the inside that even when promised something exceedingly beyond all we can ask, think, or imagine, because we've yet to see it, we will find comfort in the bondage we knew instead of the freedom we've yet to possess. And when we look back, now here's what you have to understand. Rejecting God is always an invitation of judgment. I want to say this very clearly, unless someone put words in my mouth, I don't think that the virus is the judgment of God at all. I think it's a symptom of sin and death that's entered the world. I don't think it's from God. I think the cure is from God. But I also want to make it clear that when you read the Bible, what is very clear is rejecting God is always inviting judgment rejecting God is always inviting judgment. And this is what happens here. I mean, God sends the snakes, why? Because they remove themselves from God's covering. They rejected him, they rejected his way. They said, we don't We don't wanna go with you, we wanna look, we wanna go this way, if if you will. And they remove themselves from God's covering. It invites judgment and here come the snakes, which is the wrath of God and the judgment of God and ultimately death because that is the consequence for sin. And so they invite wrath because they reject God. Listen, the world is no different. Romans 1 talks about this. It it says the wrath of God God is shown from heaven against the unrighteousness and ungodliness of man. That the wrath of God is, is shown where there's unrighteousness and ungodliness. Now here's what's incredible. Like this to me is incredible because what Romans 1 says is the consequence what, what, the, what, what wrath looks like, if you will, is it says, so God abandoned them to their own desires. I want you to think about this. That, that, and First of all, before you get like God's mad at everybody, I'll, I'll answer that question in a minute, but this is God's mercy. Because look at what God does. He's like, you reject me and you want what you want. What you want. So here's God's answer. I'll give you what you want which you think is freedom, which will end up being punishment. And that will actually bring you back to me. And that's the mercy here. God's like, I can't let them go all the way back to Egypt. They'll be captured. there will be loss of life. They'll be bloodshed. So I'll let, since they're choosing judgment instead of my mercy, I'll let them have judgment to drive them back to my mercy so that I can redeem them. Because God's like, they're going to follow their eyes. So here's what I have to do. I have to let the consequence of their actions turn their focus back to me. It's a merciful God. It's a merciful God that will allow consequence to turn us It's a merciful God that will allow even bad to turn our attention back to him. You you go after what you look to. Here's the second thing. The curse wasn't removed, but the cure was put in view. The curse wasn't removed, but the cure. It's it's interesting to me. Wouldn't you think God would just say, boom, no one's sick anymore? Okay, because they repent. God, forgive us. Moses, please pray. God, please forgive them. They messed up. Okay, okay everybody's good. You're all good. No, no, no. He didn't do that. Verse, verse eight of Numbers 21 says he told Moses, make a snake and put it on a pole. Make a snake. He didn't, he didn't take away the snakes. He provided a cure. He didn't remove the penalty. He, he provided a remedy. It it wasn't, he didn't, he didn't do something. Even the remedy wasn't preemptive. In other words, you didn't look at the snake and that, that kept you from getting bit. And you got to remember now, Jesus is talking about this to Nicodemus, and now we understand that this is messianic in, in type and shadow. That, that if you think about it, our whole world is snake bitten. Isaiah said, All we like sheep have gone astray. Um, Paul said, All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We are all snake bitten. And now what we see is this snake on a pole, Jesus says, is a type and shadow of him. And he's saying, just as the snake was lifted up, now the Son of Man is going to be lifted up. Now, here's the problem I had with the text. And I've had this for years with the text. I remember being in Bible school, and one of my friends in, in hermeneutics and homiletics, and that's where you learn to preach, essentially, and I don't think it did me any good. But but for them, it helped. Um but but I remember him. He we had to write sermons and those type of things, and you had to share them with the class, kind of like speech class for you know preachers. And um, I remember him sharing a message called uh, "Take a Look at the Cure," and uh, and it was a great message. Um, but but I remember even then, and I knew this story even from being in Sunday school. But I remember then thinking, here's the problem I have with it: is if this is supposed to represent Jesus in the Old Testament why is it a snake? Jesus is not a snake. We equate the devil with a snake, sin with a snake. It it doesn't make sense that Jesus would say, yeah, I'm the snake that was in the wilderness. Like it should be a lamb or a lion (laughs) or a man, you know, like, um, can we put Mufasa on the pole? I don't, I don't know, but I'm just saying it, it just didn't make sense. But truthfully, when you study it out and you think about it just a little bit, it makes perfect sense. And it's because of this theological term, substitutionary atonement. And what God does is God provides a cure that looks like the curse. And thought about Jesus substitutionary atonement. Here's something you may not understand. Jesus did not die for you. He died as you. And I know we say, well, Jesus died for my sin. He did, but he died as you. Your sin brought the wrath and the judgment of God and death. Just like my sin brought wrath and judgment and and death and jesus dying for me would not stay the wrath and judgment and death that was due me so jesus had to die as me so that he could take on himself in my stead as me he he took my cross He seated me with him in heavenly places. He had to die as me. And when you think about scripture, here's here's what Paul told the Corinthians. Think about this, because when there is sin, there is cause and effect. What is the cause? Sin was committed. Treason against God always invites judgment. Wrath and death. I had committed treason and you had committed treason. I was due the wrath of God, the judgment of God, and ultimately eternal death, right? The cause was my sin. The effect is the curse. You get it? Sin and death. Death entered the world because of sin. I was cursed because of sin, right? He forgives my sin. He forgives my iniquity, right? Cause, effect. And here's Jesus. And Paul says to the Corinthians, he who knew no sin, check this, became sin. It wasn't just put upon him. He became it. Oh, but it gets better. Because Galatians 3.13 says, Christ has redeemed us from the curse. Look at this. Having become a curse. Are you getting this? He didn't just take sin on, he became sin. He became the snake, the cause, the sin the effect, the curse. Look at the totality of the redemption. Not just taking on our actions and attitudes, what has caused us to be under the wrath and judgment of God, but also taking on, listen to me, all the effects, ramifications, and symptoms that could occur because of our sin. He became sin, and he became a curse in our place, in our stead, to redeem us, to free us, to deliver us, not only only from being under the wrath of God, but being under the dominion of sin and death, freeing us from all symptoms, side effects of sickness, death, hell, and the grave. Are you with me? It's so complete, and it's so good. He didn't just get rid of it. He, he 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 put the cure in view. Now think about this, because we talked about wrath, and we talked about judgment, and we talked about death, and so think about wrath for a minute. Think about this in Jesus. Jesus prays in the garden. If it be your will, let this cup pass. What's he talking about? He's talking about wrath. Both Jeremiah and Isaiah reference the cup and equate it with the wrath of God. And what Jesus is saying is, is, "I, I I don't wanna drink the cup of wrath and separation from you, but nevertheless, your will and not my will. And then on, on, on the cross, John 19, it says, Jesus, knowing that everything was fulfilled, everything was finished so that scripture would be fulfilled. He said, I thirst. And what did they give him? Sour wine. He said, I'm going to drink the cup. What? The cup of God's wrath. I'm going to drink the cup of God's wrath. Romans five, nine says much more than having been justified by his blood. We have been saved from wrath through him. We have been saved from wrath. Do you see that? Listen, people think God's mad at them. Let me help you. No, because all of his wrath was poured out on Jesus. Let me say it another way. All of the wrath that was due you was poured out on Jesus. He's not mad at you. Well, I'm judged. No, he's not judges. Jesus was wounded for our transgression, bruised for our iniquity. The chastisement that brought us peace was upon and by his stripes we were healed. He was judged in our place. In fact, 1 Peter three eighteen says, he suffered once for all sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring us to God, right? To bring us to God. He was put to death in a body, but made alive in the spirit. So he took the wrath, he took the judgment and he died. And he took our death and the, uh, not just the cause, but the effects. Here's the third thing. Write this down. Because of that, his grace comes through our gaze. His grace comes through our gaze. Numbers 21 verse eight, the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent. That's just a reference probably to how the snake bite felt. Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And it shall be that Everyone who is bitten when he looks at it shall live. First of all, look at this. Look at the grace of this. Just look at the grace of it. Um, they didn't have to do anything. They didn't have to kill a lamb, make an altar. They didn't have to go harvest berries and make a potion or a serum or a topical application of some sort. Look at the grace of it. Like this is crazy that that they are snake bitten and dying and and they don't do anything but they but they look. They just look at a at a snake raised up on a pole. <laughs> like if you want an imagery here, just okay, bonus points right here. All right? Just for you. Cuz you're here with me today. Here's a picture. Moses, what does he represent in the New Testament? The law, the law of God. And what do we know about the law of God? You can't be saved by the law of God. We can't actually keep the law of God. That the law was not actually given to make us right with God. The rules were given to convince us that we couldn't keep the rules and make ourselves right with God. The rules were given so that we would become guilty and realize we have no remedy within ourselves, that we can't be good enough for God, that we can't earn our way to God, that we can't gain our own access to God. In other words, the law was actually given as a school teacher, or Paul says in one place as a tutor. Right. In one place, he says as as um, as a guardian The law was given us not to save us, but to point to the one who could save us. That the law was given, Paul said, to frustrate us, to bring us to the point, to realize I can't keep the law. I try to keep the law, and then the law empowers sin, he says. And so I can't be made right with God by what I do. I can only be made right with God by believing in Jesus. Now, you want a picture Moses represents the law. We know that because of the Mount of Transfiguration, when Moses and Elijah appear with Jesus, he represents the law and the prophets. So here's a picture, get this, not of Moses saving them, but of Moses pointing to the one who can save them. The law is not saving them, the law is saying, look to me and I'll convince you you're guilty. But if you'll look to him, he will deliver you. If you'll look to him, he will save you. If you'll lift your eyes up and see the one who was raised up on a cross, who was raised up on a stick. then And so, so here is a picture of of grace. It is by grace that you have been saved through faith, not of yourselves. It's a gift of God so that no one should boast. And here again is the grace of God trying to save us by causing us just to look, look to means to have faith by grace. You've been saved through faith. What was their part to believe that if they looked, they'd be healed to believe that if they looked, they would be delivered, right? What we look to or what we believe in, we look to or we trust in. That's why David said, I'll look to the hills from where my help comes. My help comes from the Lord. I'll look to, why? Because that's who I trust in. Now, here's the truth of it. You can only look in one direction. You can only look in one direction. You can't look to Jesus and look to Egypt. You can't look to the promise and look to bondage. You can't look to God and, and look to yourself. And he said this. So, so here's this grace. And it's through this faith that, that we believe. In fact, Jesus ties looking and believing. Let me just show you this. John three fourteen and 15. It says, so Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness. So the son of man must be lifted up that everyone who believes. Do you see that? Just as Moses lifted up the serpent, the son of man must be lifted up so that everyone who believes. So now we're equating looking to and having faith in. And he's saying, so when you look to me and me alone, when you have faith in me and me alone, then here's what it says. When he looks, he shall live. Like the gaze is the delivery system for the grace. When he looks, he will live. The delivery method came from fixing a focus, from fixing their gaze, looking back at Egypt, no, looking forward, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. And God says, if you don't look to me, I can't deliver you. But if you would look to me, I will deliver you. Look at this, Zechariah 12, 10. I love this verse. It says, I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the spirit of grace. Look at this. It's messianic. Watch this. And they will look on me whom they have pierced. I will pour out the spirit of grace and they will look to me. He's saying you got to fix. Grace comes to help us fix our gaze. To fix our focus. Um, What you look to determines what you're filled with. Jesus is talking in Sermon on Mount Matthew 6 and he says the eye is the lamp of the body. And if your eyes are healthy, your whole body is full of light. But your eyes, if they're unhealthy, then your whole body is full of darkness. He said, look at this. What I look to, I'll be filled with. Here's another way you could say that is what you look to, you empower in your life. Think about it. Because I trust in what I, what I look to, I'm trusting in. And, and, and what we've just been through and, and are going through as a people is I think some of the things people have looked to, they realize that's not something I should trust in. We have all made the mistake of looking to things that were not worthy of trust, of looking to things that we should not have placed our trust and our hope in. And God in his mercy sometimes (laughs) removes those things and recaptures our focus because we have a tendency to look at things that don't have the power to save us. And you think about um, Peter walking on the water. It says, as long as he looked at Jesus, he could walk on the storm. And then it says, then he started to look at the storm and he began to sink. What I look to is empowered in my life. What I look to, I give power to. Think about Jesus. Jesus, um, Lazarus is sick And Jesus comes to Bethany, but he gets there too late. And Mary and Martha show up and they're none too happy. And they say, Jesus, if you had been here, then he wouldn't have died. And so they are they are looking to the tomb, right? And then at one point they say, you know what else? I know someday he'll rise again. Now they're looking into eternity. And Jesus stops them. And he actually, really what he says is, look to me. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, he who looks to me, although he is dead, yet shall he live. All he is doing is lifting their focus from a tomb and even from a far off hope in eternity back to him who is the resurrection and the life, who is the power to change any circumstance. He is trying to get their attention, to gain their gaze again. Are are you with me? One more thing. I I just want to say this. That what I think is so interesting about Numbers 21 that I think is so applicable to where we are is that the remedy was spiritual, but the ailment was physical. I want you to think about the delivery method of the cure was spiritual. How do I know that? Because no one touched them, no one prayed for them, no one drank anything, took anything, was shot with anything, rubbed anything on them, there was not a physical cure. It was a spiritual remedy with physical ramifications, which is exactly what Jesus brought us. He said, The problem is death, the answer is life. And Paul calls it in one place, the life giving spirit, the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. He calls it in another place that that everyone is snake bitten by sin. Everyone is under the dominion or the effects of death. And then Jesus is lifted up. And he said, if I be lifted up, I can draw me. In other words, they have an opportunity to look at me. They have an opportunity to believe me. And he has lifted up, and there's no topical solution, there's no injection, there's no pill. There's a spiritual remedy where a life-giving spirit is transferred by grace through fixing our eyes on him, through fixing our gaze. And I want you to think about the fact that just as death was singular in function, it was... Global in application. Think about it. Separated from God by sin and then through death, through death comes what? Well, we see the first murder. We see people dying. We see sickness. We see disease, anxiety, insecurity, depression, fear. All of that came, one function of death, multiple applications. Then Jesus is lifted up, draws all men to him and says, if you believe me, I'm the resurrection, the life. And again, what we see is one function with universal application. If you believe me, I can make you alive again. And the life, the spirit that raised Christ from the dead can dwell in you and quicken your bodies. And and now we have an application not only for spiritual death, but for physical death I say this because as I prayed, I just felt like people honestly would be healed today. And I need you to understand that the resurrection, the application of it, yes, is that we can have eternal life, but the application is not that God, that Jesus died to get us into heaven, but he died to get life into us. And if that life is in us and quickens our bodies, that life can bring healing and health and help and remedy for every sickness, for every disease, for every fear, for every state of depression, whether it's physiological, whether it's spiritual, whether it's emotional, whether it's mental, that it's one function, universal applications. Are, are you with me? And so when you look at Isaiah, he, he was wounded for our transgression. If you've sinned, there's an application. He was bruised for our iniquity. If you're in bondage and brokenness, there's an application. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. If you have fear and anxiety, there's an application. And by his stripes, we are healed. If you are are sick, diseased, infirmed, there's an application that Jesus said, I'm gonna be lifted up. This is what he's telling Nicodemus. I'm gonna be lifted up. And those who believe in me, they're gonna gain life. And that life not only has an effect in eternity, but it has an effect in the here and now. And just as it healed Israel from the snake bite, it heals us from being snake bitten it heals every symptom of that bite no matter what it is are you with me and I feel like all the Holy Spirit is telling the church today and those who are watching today is look at the cure. Look at the, fix your gaze. Don't look at the curse. Don't look at Egypt. Look to the cure. Set your eyes, fix your eyes on Jesus. The author and the finish of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising its shame. And now he is seated at the right hand of, of God, making intercession for you and I. And he's praying today that we would fix our gaze. And that's really, that's the whole message. It took me a lot of time to get there. But just fix your gaze. And when everything starts going back to whatever the new normal is, keep your gaze fixed. Keep him as the priority. Keep him as the first. Keep your focus fixed on him. And let his grace continue to flood your life. Are you with me? While well, we look at, we go after. And he, he didn't provide a cure. He just put a remedy in view. And the truth is his grace comes through our gaze. And today, if you need his grace, whatever the universal application of that grace may be, it could be that you need to be made right with God. It could be that you need to be forgiven. It could be, That you need to be made a new creation. And it could be that you're sick. And it could be that you're depressed. and It could be that you're anxious. Here's what I'm saying. Fix your gaze. Don't look at Egypt. And don't look at the snakes. Fix your gaze on the one who 2,000 years ago was lifted up. And he said, all who believe will live. Can I pray for you, Father? Thank you so much. For your goodness and your grace. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for coming. For dying. For being raised again. For providing life for us. And God, I pray today that if there's those who are watching, and if you're watching, And you don't have a relationship with Jesus. I'm not asking if you've ever been to church. I'm not asking if you've read a Bible. I'm asking if you have a relationship with him. Have you laid your life down to follow him completely? Are you a follower of Jesus? Not a fan, not someone who knows about. But are you listening to his words? Living your life according to his truth. You have a relationship where you hear him, where you talk to him, where he speaks to you. If you don't have that, please understand that's what he died. He died to give you the same relationship with God that he has. And today that comes through fixing your gaze and believing on him. And if that's you, I want to pray for you where you're at. Whatever room, whatever place, whatever device. Pray this with me. God, I pray in Jesus' name that you would forgive me, that you would cleanse me, that you would make me new. I believe Jesus is the Son of God who died and gave himself for me. I place my faith and trust in him. I look to him today. Help me to follow you the rest of my life. And I pray for those who are watching today. God, I pray if they're sick, God, that even where they're at, there'll be a healing. I just rebuke the symptoms, the struggle, the pain. God, I pray just as you raised Jesus from the dead, you would raise them up in health and healing and wholeness today. God, whatever they're dealing with in their body, infections or pain of any kind, God, I pray for healing in Jesus' name. God, I pray for all of our church. God, that we would fix our gaze on you. That we would follow you. And God, let nothing ever take our attention away from you. Because it's your grace, but it comes through our gaze. So we stay fixed on you. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name. Listen. We would love to pray with you if if you need a relationship with Jesus or you just need healing or they're going through something or you just want prayer, text prayer to the number on your screen. We would love to pray with you. I'm praying for you. Happy Resurrection Weekend. I love you. I believe in you and I believe the best is ahead. Let's fix our gaze on him.